why would a mother take part in the murder of her own two children? If something like money is part of the reason for that, then I think it is important for them to prove that up because the jurors may be convinced of her involvement, but they are still wondering to themselves. And that's going to be some sort of lingering doubt that the prosecution needs to address as far as why, why would she do this? Welcome to the global phenomenon, surviving the survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, SCS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime, and today is no exception. Week three of the Lori Vallow Daybell trial began a day late today after a death in the family of one of the prosecutors, an unfortunate uh, set of circumstances, but it does happen uh, with trials and uh Week three kicked off today. Of course, it is the trial of the so-called doomsday mom, the wildly twisted story of a seemingly loving mother, a self-proclaimed devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who clearly veered way off course and became involved in the deaths of as many as five people, including her own children. Best guest tonight, you've seen her once before and hopefully many times again in the future, she is the great Ann Bremner, a trial attorney and one of the nation's most recognized legal analysts. Uh, in her 35 years of practice, she's been lead counsel for many highly publicized court cases and was a prosecuting attorney for, for the criminal division of the King County Prosecutor's Office in Seattle from 1983 to 1988 and is a regular contributing lead analyst on TV and cable, including Fox, CNN, MSNBC, Headline News, and now Surviving the Survivor. And uh, Dr. Laura McNeil, we are getting her picture up right now. She is currently, there she is, there she is. She's currently a professor of law where she teaches civil procedure, Civ Pro, as the law students call it, education, law, urban revitalization, and the law and employment discrimination. Her scholarly interests examine issues of access and equity in employment and education law. She's contributed to the national debate on law, education policy, and race relations through op-eds and radio and television news features for the Dr. Phil Show, CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, NBC, and now she will put STS on her resume <laughs> as well, the most important of all, obviously. Uh, Joshua Ritter, he was named the 2015 Outstanding Prosecutor of the Year by the Association of Deputy District Attorneys upon joining his current personal form, El Dabe Ritter trial lawyers. Josh has continued to devote his talents to the tenacious and zealous defense of his clients, and perhaps most importantly here, he hosts the podcast, True Crime Daily, The Sidebar. So check it out, True Crime Daily, uh, The Sidebar. Today, a little bit of a somber day. just wanted to mention it is Yom HaShoah, also known as Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, Shoah means catastrophe or utter destruction in Hebrew. It refers to the atrocities that were committed against the Jewish people during World War II. It is a memorial day for those who died in the Shoah. It is also known as the Holocaust from the Greek word, meaning sacrifice by fire. And because of that, no days off for Carmela. She was speaking uh, at a bunch of schools, and I posted uh, a picture of her on Instagram. If you want to check it out, at Surviving the Survivor, doing her thing, uh, actually speaking at her 
grandchildren's school up in New Jersey. So that was kind of touching to uh, to watch. Um, on to the Lori Vallow Daybell trial. Dr. Laura, you're a first-time guest. The other two have been here. Just your uh, overall impression of this case. I know it's a huge, a huge wide open question. Uh, a lot of wackiness going on. Uh, what's your take up to this point uh, as we embark on week three? You know, so I think that they, as they call her doomsday cult mom, um, she's going to jail. Uh, I think if I were her attorney, I'd be trying to negotiate some type of deal uh, with the prosecutor for this case, because I mean, every day the evidence just keeps building upon building, uh, proving her guilt. Granted, this is very early in the trial, but just knowing what we know uh, in terms of what to expect about the evidence, um, she herself, when you have her own son on the stand today, uh, talking about um, his mother's capability of killing, of doing harm, it's very hard for a jury to get past that. So what I see happening is a slow moving train wreck for Lori Vallow towards a guilty verdict. Uh, Anne, has anything changed with you uh, from last week to this week uh, with the case? We've seen some harrowing testimony, uh, some tears today from the sun, which we'll get to, but has anything changed? No, it's just gotten worse. I mean, and I, I think the paper trail is pretty amazing. The financial piece pieces, I should say. I mean, it, the prosecutors are doing an amazing job, and she's so clearly guilty, especially when you look at the conspiracy counts and the way this case is charged. She's, um, I don't know why she smiles sometimes. I don't know if she's smiling because we can't see her. We can only hear what people see when they're in the courtroom, but she, I think she's going to prison. She's lucky death is off the table. That's all I can say. Mm. You think uh, she'd be receiving uh, the, the, the horrific end of that? possible firing squad if she was up for the death penalty? You know, I do. I mean, I'm here in Washington. It's Idaho. I mean, it's a pretty conservative state. And I don't care if it's a firing squad or hanging like we have here in Washington or mm -hmm. lethal injection or anything else. If any case deserves a death penalty, I think it's this one. Strong words. Uh, Joshua, same question. You were on with Anne, I believe it was a week ago. Has anything changed in your mind uh, regarding the case as we uh, We'll break down some of the details from today in just a moment. No, I think I, I have to say I agree with Anne and Laura that uh, it, the case seems very strong. The prosecution hasn't made any missteps. I will say that it, it's it's heavy on motive and consciousness of guilt, which doesn't necessarily mean weak. But um, I'm I'm curious to see how they're going to start to piece together some of the more forensic uh, evidence and kind of tie her to the murders themselves um, and how that's to come. But does even, even uh, you know, saving that, putting that aside, you still have an incredibly strong case circumstantially from what they put together. Um, Maggie Seymour writes, STS Nation jumping in already, and this is a, a legal question and uh, no better panel to ask it of. Dr. Laura, uh, she says, what needs to be laid out for the jury to actually find Lori guilty? Can all this 404 evidence get a conviction based on actual charges. It feels like a zoo. Again, this is a pretty big question, but I think some of the concern that people have who are following the case is that five bodies, uh, you know, floated on up and were dead, but there's not necessarily any, you know, direct evidence. So uh, I think that's where the question is uh, headed. 
I think that Joshua really hit it on the nail with his comment about the power of this circumstantial evidence. And it, it just needs to be enough, right? Enough circumstantial evidence, as Joshua was, was saying, to connect Lori Vallow to the actual murders of her two children, as well as Chad Daybell's wife. And so it's one thing to establish that clearly it, it appears that she was a member of a cult. It appears uh, that she has some very irrational um, thinking going on in terms of her calling to cast out demons. That's not enough to say that she actually killed her children. So I think uh, the evidence they need is to show, as Joshua was alluding to, forensic evidence showing that she was there. She was there at the uh, area that they were behind Chad Daybell's home where the children were buried, uh, that she was involved in the planning of the burial. Uh, that can be from comments she made uh, to her friends, uh, any type of text messages, voicemails, emails, but they're going to have to make a direct link between Lori Vallow's active involvement with not only the conspiracy, meaning the planning of this murder, but the actual murder as well. Uh, so there's kind of a little elephant in the room, and I never like to hide the elephant, but we had uh, Lori Hellis on the show, who's a friend of the show, a uh, phenomenal lawyer, a uh, great person, um, and good grandma writes, and there's people tweeting about this, which is why I wanted to bring it up, but I saw Lori Hellis got kicked out for recording in the courtroom. I can tell you uh, she was not recording in the courtroom, and uh, I spoke with Lori Hellis, and Lori's not ready to talk publicly yet, but she said she will come on the show and address it, uh, but she had filed motions, um, and she and I spoke privately, but um, I just wanted to get a sense, uh, Ann Bremner, um, you know, this is a judge, um, and, and I want to be careful, I guess, how I say this, who may not love, uh, Lori, who was our guest last night on the show. And, uh, for a reason or two, uh, that are debatable, she was basically asked to leave the court tomorrow. Um, the way I understand it, she will likely be back tomorrow, but, um, I don't know. Do you see this in court where there's sometimes an, a friction between, so, you know, someone who's observing and the judge or something goes awry. Have you seen this before? Oh, sure. I mean, it happened in the Murdoch trial with Buster. Mm -hmm. um, remember, he got moved a few rows back and supposedly he flipped the bird or something in a witness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, sure, it happens, especially in high profile trials. And the judge can control his own courtroom, which he did here. But I don't think it's unusual. I've been in the courtroom in the Michael Jackson case, Scott Peterson case. You know, and you've got judges that have a pretty tight reign in a high-profile case, especially where they're not allowing cameras or recordings. Yeah, and that's a good point. Uh, Josh, how about you? Is this something that you've uh, experienced as, a, as an attorney? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it is, like Ann said, it really depends on the courtroom and the judge and the, the bailiffs running the courtroom. But I know to, to reference a recent case here in Los Angeles in the Harvey Weinstein case, the judge had a real uh, lockdown policy about any kind of phones mm -hmm. in the courtroom. So all the reporters had to put their phones away. And I even heard stories about reporters glancing at their phones in their bag and being asked to leave by the bailiffs. So sometimes these judges take this incredibly seriously and they, they're just trying to protect the, the sanctity of their courtroom. And if they've made an order that there isn't to be any kind of recording or even the appearance of recording or communication outside of their courtroom, they're going to, they're going to take whatever actions they feel are necessary, but it's nice to see that at least in this case, they're going to allow her back in. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking of you, Lori, and uh, we'll talk further and hopefully she'll come on this show uh, and talk to us about what happened. Marina says, hi everyone. Greetings from Spain. She's uh, a frequent 
fan, uh, watching all the time in the south of Spain. We've got Australia in the house. Uh, and good evening from the UK as well. So truly a global show here. Uh, Dr. Laura, uh, what do you teach your law students about uh, behavior in front of the judge? Uh, just back to this last issue. Um, is, there, is there a tried and true formula? Every judge is different. Um, how, how do you know how to read a judge or the courtroom for that matter? Uh, definitely every judge is different. I tell my students, you want to research that judge if you haven't been before that judge before to find out what their reputation is in the field. Some judges are very hardcore, strict rule followers. Other ones are more laid back. And so it's important to know uh, what their stance is or how they run their court, because if you go against them or go against the grain, it can really impact um, how you are being received in terms of your motions, uh, requests that you're making in the courtroom. Um, it's very important. What I tell my students is judges remind us of the human aspect, right, of our criminal justice system or, and our civil justice system as well. They're human. Um, you don't want to essentially piss a judge off, to be quite frank with you. And you want to make sure uh, that you are uh, following however their courtroom protocol etiquette is, uh, is important. So I always say, make sure you know going in uh, what that judge is known for and how not to push their buttons. Uh, teacher Terry writes, looking forward to hearing Ann Bremner's comments. And uh, you're in luck because Ann Bremner is sitting right in front of you. Uh, <laughs> and our fan is here. Teresa's watching from Ireland, who's uh, also, uh, she's a frequent flyer. So hello, Ireland. Um, Ann, this is the question, uh, sort of my title for the show today. And that is, have the jurors already made up their mind? It's the beginning of week three. Uh, by the way, Lori Hellis went on the record yesterday to say that this is supposed to be an eight-week eight trial. She says she will be surprised if it lasts an additional two weeks, which would make mm -hmm. it a five-week trial. Uh, it's moving at a very swift pace. But uh, to that point, do you think jurors have already decided, uh, for the most part, which way they will uh, go in that deliberation room? Well, first, hello to Ireland. And I met great law students at Trinity there in Ireland. <laughs> love, love Dublin, Dublin, love Ireland. I think that they, you know, I think they have. And my brother and I wrote a book. It's called Justice in the Age of Judgment. And we talked exactly about that, you know, confirmation bias. There's an unsighted rule, but it's cited all the time. There's just no basis for us. The jurors make up their minds in opening statements and they never change their minds. You know, and they'll just filter all the evidence through what they heard in openings. That's why openings are so important. I much prefer giving an opening in a high-profile trial to giving the closing. By that time, I'm just tired at the end of the trial. But I think that they have. I mean, it's a, it's a very compelling case. And even though they're told to keep an open mind, I bet if you took a survey right now or if you ended the trial right now, they would be very much against her. It just, there's been nothing in the defense. I mean, you keep, I keep waiting. You know, you hear some snippets and parts of cross, you know, that she has an alibi. She was in Hawaii, you know, with, with Tammy Daybell. But the fact is, we really haven't heard anything from the defense as to what this defense is. And we know you can't have an insanity defense in Idaho because that could have been compelling given the cult aspect of this case. Uh, Joshua, um, I was doing my research ahead of the show as per usual every day up till now. Uh, Lori has been, um, every, everyone's been analyzing her dress, what she's wearing. The first week she was wearing uh, all black with reading glasses, and some said that was a bad idea. She should be wearing pastels. These were according to jury consultants, so people read into this. But uh, today was the first day she where she was not shackled uh, by her legs to a uh, floor lock. 
Uh, she was able to walk freely uh, around the courtroom, apparently. Any reason for this that you would know of that in the third week, suddenly uh, leg shackles are gone? No legal reason uh, I can think of. Uh, perhaps you just have different <laughs> sergeant who's uh, taking care of the security for the courtroom who's decided that she's not a, a threat to anyone and there's no reason for it. It also could have been a request from the defense, but I imagine we would have heard about that. But okay. it's funny that you you noticed it and you pointed out uh, it, also her, her dress, what she's wearing every day, because I'll tell you 12 other people who are noticing these things are the jurors. They really pay attention to this type of stuff. I've talked to jurors after trials, and it's amazing the little details and the things that they notice. And, you know, um, sometimes pains are taken in trials where somebody's in custody. In a high-profile case like this, it's no wonder to the jurors that she's likely in custody. But in other cases where you have a client, where you have a defendant, pardon me, in custody, you know, the, the, the attorney will bring in a suit for them and, and get them dressed up so it doesn't appear so obviously that they're an inmate as the trial is going on. But jurors are receptive to things even like the shoes that the defendant is wearing. And if it's obvious to them that those are those kind of slip-ons provided to them by the county, they know that person's in custody. And I've heard this from jurors. So it's funny. They are paying attention to all these little details. They are, are likely noticing that she's not shackled as well. I don't and, know what uh, conclusions they're drawing from that, but but they notice it. And Dr. Laura, what do you, uh, since you're, you're the professor here, what do you tell your uh, law students about, um, you know, the presentation of the defendant? How, how important is that in a courtroom because everyone is uh, watching? It's extremely important because what I try to explain to my students is that you want to humanize uh, your defendant. And so for, in this case, I would advise uh, them to, if they were representing Lori Vallow, you want to paint her as uh, the doting, loving mother who's lost her children in these tragic murders, um, who could never, ever, ever conceivably um, harm her children in this way, let alone murder them. But, you know, it, it matters. There's tons of research that talks about uh, the power of first impressions, uh, the power of, of people's biases, as, as Anne was referencing that they make. They make judgment calls. Um, you see someone at a job interview, you make a judgment call if that person has on a suit versus jeans and a t-shirt, right? And so I, I tell my students mm -hmm. the same applies in a courtroom setting with your defendant. You want them to look uh, like someone the jury can relate to, um, a next door neighbor, um, a member of their church. And in this case, so important that they humanize Lori for the jury as opposed to her being portrayed as this uh, vicious cult uh, follower uh, with these very, again, allegedly very um, extreme religious views. And it's funny you mentioned that because John Pryor, who is Chad Daybell's attorney, reportedly showed up to not the actual courtroom, but I think the overflow room last week wearing a, a uh, tattered T-shirt, as it was described. And people were wondering, why would his attorney okay. show up? Uh, I might do that, but I don't know why he would do that. <laughs> um, Papa Bear is in Moscow, not Moscow, but Moscow, Idaho, where the tragic quadruple homicide happened. So our thoughts are always with her. I think I'm just uh, fascinated by our, our audience here. We've got Hawaii in the house who said that Lori is just as guilty as Chad. And then we've got Scotland, Wales, and southeastern Idaho, and then Memphis. So uh, we've got all our bases uh, covered and JM echoing the sentiments of Ann Bremner here saying the prosecution is doing a 
fabulous job of case building. Um, and to you, um, the jurors today were reported as being more attentive than on other days. And this was early in the morning before Kobe Ryan, uh, the only surviving child of Lori Vallow, uh, was testifying. So this was earlier in the day, but uh, described as being much more attentive and taking copious notes. One juror, a man, there, uh, forget the breakdown. I think it's 10 men and eight women, if I'm correct, 10 men and eight women mm -hmm. um, with the alternates. But one juror, a man seems to be noting everything being said. Lori is also taking notes directly across from the juror box. What does that tell you, Anne, that uh, all these people are uh, jotting down uh, notes feverishly? Well, especially with financial information, you know, that paper trail, which is very detailed from what I've seen so far. Um, I think it's great the jurors are doing that. Why Lori is taking notes? You know, sometimes lawyers tell their client, you know, why don't you take notes? So it looks like you're doing something right. You're not just sitting at counsel table and, and looking around the room or whatever. I don't know. Why, why is she taking notes? I mean, she knows all of this. Is she going to help her lawyers with how to dispel you know, what's in the, the, the financial information about money she got from Social Security, you know, money that she wanted to get from insurance, I think, from Charles um, Daybell that, you know, looking at, you know, all of the money that Chad and everything else. I mean, part of what they talked about is, is about set, not part, all they talked about in opening is, is about sex, power and money. And here's the money piece. The jurors, sometimes the jurors kind of designate one person, I've seen in my cases, as being the note taker, too. You'll have one juror that's primarily going to be the, the scrivener, so to speak. But it's a big day when you have actual evidence in a circumstantial evidence case. But one final thing that I think your viewers need to realize is a fingerprint circumstantial evidence. I mean, you don't see the person put their finger down, but the fingerprint itself is circumstantial evidence that they did. And circumstantial evidence is as valid as direct. I think it's better. You know, witnesses can and do lie. They can be mistaken, but evidence never lies. Look at this. Let's hear Ritter. They want to hear more Josh Ritter. So here you go. Uh, so, <laughs> excuse me, Colby Ryan, uh, the, as I said, the only surviving child um, and the oldest child uh, of Lori Vallow took the stand today. Um, according to reports, because there are no cameras, Lori Vallow mouthed to him as he was taking the stand, oh, my baby. Um, Gas gas broke out in the courtroom when Ryan uh, Colby Colby Ryan twenty seven took the stand. He wept on the witness stand at points, and Lori Vallow was dabbing her eyes. So Josh, how pivotal is this? He did not want to make any eye contact. They were having sort of uh, she was staring him down. You know that feeling when you can feel someone looking at you. And he was, according to reports, just doing everything in his power not to look at her. At one point, he kind of dismissed her with a head shake, I read. But how critical is this part of the, you know, the testimony in this trial? It's really unfortunate that we don't have cameras in the courtroom for this type of testimony. because You can just imagine the, the tension. I, I got to tell you, I've, I've been in trials many, many times, um, and it's hard to describe for someone sometimes the drama and the tension that can be created in a courtroom when you have a situation just like this, where you have a surviving child testifying against his mother, who's taken the lives of his two other siblings. It, you, you cannot dream up what that feels like to be in that courtroom. And the jurors feel that. 
it, that they're, they're, they're going through that just like everyone else in that courtroom. And they're watching Lori. They're watching the way that he, she was, you know, staring at him and his reaction to it. As far as pivotal, um, you know, moving the needle uh, in the case, it really depends on what he was testifying to, but this, you know, this case is not for lack of emotions to begin with, but you can just imagine what it felt like to just have the the, the stillness of the air inside of that courtroom as he was testifying. Yeah, there's no real drama like courtroom drama when you're right in the middle of it. Um, Laurel Backer uh, writes, Dr. Laura, I think all the smiles are a disassociative thing, just my opinion. Um, there are numerous reports that uh, Lori Vallow's behavior is off, and we can go back to she had a, basically a meltdown in the courtroom last week. But one of the things that she's doing almost daily is she's smiling and giggling. Um, how problematic is this? And if you were her defense team, I mean, I, I would have to imagine they've tried to rein her in to no avail. But what would you say to her at this point if she was your client? So she was my client. Um, I definitely would have a, a heart to heart. Um, this is at this critical point in the trial where really all she has is, uh, because the evidence is so compelling, how the jury perceives her. And, and what I mean by that is to see her son on the stand today, um, literally, you know, he's clearly emotionally um, upset. He's talking about uh, the tragic murders of his siblings. Um, he's talking about how much he misses his stepfather, Charles Vallow, and to see his mother's response is to laugh. Um, very problematic because it it dehumanizes her and it puts her in, from the jury's perception, the mindset of a murderer, someone that um, has a total disregard for other people's emotions, and in this case, human life. Um, I think that... Um, I do want to say this about Lori Vallow because I, I will give her the small little credit. Uh, probably the only thing I give her credit for um, this entire um, podcast. But she did for the first time show some emotion. She did cry today um, when her son stated that she thought he thought he, she was a good mom. Um, and when he was talking about how much he missed his stepfather. So I think that was a pivotal moment for Lori. And I would tell her to be quite frank, you need to have more pivotal moments. You need to show raw emotion. You, you need to show that you um, are disturbed um, by the death of your children, that you are concerned. You need to look human um, and not like um, someone that has no emotions um, and a total disregard uh, for the welfare and benefits of others. And so I think if she does not make a change from all the snickering that she's been doing um, and other what I consider to be problematic nonverbals, all she's doing is increasing uh, the likelihood uh, that she's going to be convicted. And uh, Bat Fastard weighs in. You can do the math there on that name. Uh, and you're a lot more uh, intelligent and eloquent than me, but I think this is an important point, and I'd love you, for you to elaborate on this. But uh, he writes, so far removed from the LDS church beliefs, people should not think about any association at all I had someone write to me and ask me to change my intro a little bit. And that's why in the intro, I said a self-proclaimed uh, LDS member who veered way off course because she claimed she was a member, but she didn't really follow, uh, you know, the church's teachings. But how important is it, Anne, or maybe not in your opinion, to distinguish between where she is and where the LDS church stands? I think it's huge. And of course, you've got a large 
population of LDS in parts of Idaho and, of course, in Utah. And, you know, they, she, they are so far off. You know, she was raised LDS, but they, they're so far off. They're simply a cult, you know, of basically the two of them calling people zombies and thinking they need to be set on fire, you know, to really release darkness in them, et cetera. And you've got a trail of bodies. So I think it's, it's hugely important, you know, and I think I, I, the case I was just talking about earlier before we went on the air was out of Utah where all the folks in the case were LDS, but then some were fallen LDS, you know, and against the church. And there's some books about this. John Krakauer has one called under the banner of heaven. So clearly this is not, the LDS Church. It's not the Church of Latter-day Saints. And to make that very clear, because this is all, you know, criminal and occult. Uh, Josh, I don't know if you have the answer to this, but uh, by the way, STS Nation is on fire tonight. Very good legal questions uh, flowing in here, which makes my job a lot easier. So thank you. Miss <laughs> um, Wee Lassie writes, if the trial goes ahead for Charles Vallow's death, could they bring in the death penalty for that? If she gets charged with this present case, thanks, Josh. Obviously, that would be in Arizona. Uh, as far as I know, there is the death penalty. Um, what's the law on that? Could she be tried uh, in a death penalty case for for his death? If they do have the death penalty in Arizona, absolutely. I mean, she's she's that's a separate crime. She's on trial for a separate crime um, in a separate jurisdiction, and they're allowed to make their own determination. Now, the question would be. Would there be any potential difficulties uh, on appeal or or arguments that her team could make based upon the decision that the judge made in Idaho and the reason for that? It wasn't entirely just a legal uh, decision that he made, but he made some sort of determination, at least my understanding was about her mental health. And if you have one judge saying, I, you know, based upon this person's mental health, the fact that she's had a doubt declared against her by her uh, defense team, uh, not once, but twice before trial even started, you're dealing with a person in a very precarious mental health situation. Is that going to place the judge in Arizona in a bit of a corner uh, to make an independent decision? The answer to that, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think the answer would be he can, he or she can make an independent decision, but I think that her defense team would have um, at least some footing to say, listen, another jurisdiction, I realize it's another jurisdiction, doesn't hold any kind of dominion over this court, but they have called into question her mental health. And maybe that's a reason to not uh, hold her responsible for that highest penalty in that state. I guess time will tell on that one. Uh, JXPX9, complicated name. Um, sounds like an AI uh, bot here. Uh, Andy, you, does anyone think that Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow actually believe this quote-unquote mission of theirs had good holy intentions or just a mass to manipulate and get what they wanted? Lawyers are sort of psychologists. They, uh, huh. you know, they're like uh, hairstylists. You go and you tell them your problems, same thing with a lawyer, <laughs> right? So not that dissimilar. So uh, what, what do you make of this comment slash question? That's a great question. I mean, it could be one or the other. I mean, did they really believe it? Wouldn't they have to believe it to do what they did? On the other hand, you know, they had certain goals that they were meeting, right? And so they didn't need to believe anything and they wanted to get to where they were and they used that as a ruse, you know, basically with all these kind of crazy ideas 
to get where they needed to be. And it was ruthless. It's just really unbelievable. But Lori seems to have had a lot of these ideas before she met Chad. And then it was a match made in heaven or made in hell, as the case may be. Hmm. Well put. Um, so I have kind of a more general uh, timeline of what happened today and then some more specifics. So let's start with the, the more general. Obviously, we talked about uh, Lori, you know, at least appearing human by saying, oh, my baby, when she saw her son, Colby Ryan. Um, Colby had to identify uh, pictures of his two late siblings, uh, J.J., Vallow, and Tylee Ryan. Uh, he spoke to them shortly before her 17th birthday <coughs> in the fall of 2019. Um, Ryan then told the jury uh, that on July 11, 2019, Lori told him that her fourth husband, Charles Vallow, had died of a heart attack. We know he was shot in a in what was described as a self you know self defense. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't until he went to his mother's Phoenix area home that evening that his uncle Alex Cox, of course, who shot Charles Vallow, told him a different story. Um, Dr. Laura, to you, I mean, she's she's perpetuating a lie and the jurors are hearing this. How problematic is that in terms of coming back to bite her in the behind when uh, the state, you know, reveals all of that? Um, I think it's very problematic uh, because she has a credibility issue. And when you have a credibility issue, again, I'm assuming that they're not going to make the poor decision and have her testify. But it, when you have a credibility issue, then what it says to the jury is, well, if she's lying about this, meaning how her husband died to her own son, then what else is she lying about? What else is she not being credible about in terms of her account that she was, again, allegedly in Hawaii, that's her alibi, uh, and that she was not involved in any way with this murder. So really, it it hurts her extensively. And that's a tactic that any prosecutor is going to use. You want to um, compromise, expose the lack of credibility of that particular defendant, because again, it helps put them in a space for the jury of being um, untruthful and, and again, capable of doing uh, a murder as we saw in this particular case. So credibility is a central issue that you want to attack to the greatest extent possible for a defendant. And that's what's happening with Lori. By the way, Bat Fastard, I see, uh, says he lives two miles from the crime scene, I think in Rexburg, Idaho. So uh, I'm sorry to hear that, but nice to have you uh, visiting with us here. Um, Josh, back to you. Um, and Ann just mentioned this. I mean, the opening statements for the state was this is about power, sex, and money. Um, first question, how critically important is it for the state to then back all that up? Um, that's question number two. Uh, and it came up today, which is why I ask. And uh, they asked Colby Ryan about this. And Colby Ryan says they were, quote, unquote, out of money. Uh, the family was out of money. Um, so again, how important is all, you know, all this financial uh, evidence and testimony as we move forward with the state saying it was partly about money? Well, to answer your first question, the state has to answer all of the, the, the uh, promises that they're going to make in opening statement. I mean, that's, that's incredibly important for the state, for the defense, not, not as much, but for the prosecution, if you're going to go up there and tell the jurors, 
I'm going to provide you with this information. I'm going to provide you with this evidence. You're going to understand by the time this case is done, A, B, C, and D. You better produce A, B, C, and D. Or one, the defense is going to exploit that and say, look at how they didn't follow through. They're the ones with the burden. They didn't meet their burden, even of what they promised to you. And jurors will remember things like that. But it's also important um, because this case, it, it, one of the biggest problems, ironically, with this case is the question that I think jurors naturally and all of us came into this asking ourselves is how and why would someone do this, this something, this heinous and horrible. Why in the world would someone take the lives of their own children? And so providing a reason, uh, you know, we talk again and again on these types of shows about how the prosecution doesn't have to prove motive. But in a case like this, that is such a huge question to understand why would a mother take part in the murder of her own two children? And if something like money is part of the reason for that, then I think it is important for them to prove that up because the jurors may be convinced of her involvement, um, but they are still wondering to themselves, and that's going to be some sort of lingering doubt that the prosecution needs to address as far as why, why would she do this? Another great point. Papa Bear, Moscow, uh, question. Uh, Dr. Laura, I'll let you take this one. Is it true Lori's defense team doesn't plan to put on any defense witnesses and instead will only do a closing statement? Um, I've heard that as well. Um, obviously, we don't know exactly what the defense is going to do, but how common is it uh, in a case like this of this magnitude for the defense to just rest without calling witnesses? Um, I don't think it's common. I understand that litigation strategy if they move forward, but at the very least, they should try to put up some witnesses that can speak to Lori's credibility, that can speak to her uh, as a loving mother of uh, her two children, JJ and Tylee. I believe I pronounced the name correctly, but it's important to show her in a different light. Otherwise, the narrative uh, that the prosecution is providing forth in terms of how Lori Vallow really is, that's the only impression the jury has. That and, of course, her laughing um, at inappropriate times during the trial. And so I actually think it would be a mistake, um, my opinion personally, for her defense team not to put up any witnesses. I think it will just further uh, increase or enhance her chances of a guilty verdict. And Ann, we're back on the money issue here. Uh, Colby Ryan testified that Ty Lee, obviously his deceased uh, sister, had been the recipient of the life insurance for uh, husband number three, Joe Ryan, who was her father and, and Colby Ryan's uh, stepfather, mm -hmm. um, and that she was occasionally sending Colby money uh, via Venmo, um, and then said... Uh, that she told her big brother, uh, Colby, that their mother was now the overseer of that life insurance payout and, quote, said she was no longer in control of her money and my mom was handling it. Uh, did the jurors' ears immediately perk up when they're hearing this after they heard it's about money, sex, and power? Uh, absolutely. And then, you know, taking control over Social Security payments, you know, I mean, it's, especially when you're dealing with any children of a husband, you know, that, you know, is deceased, of course, that's why they get them. I mean, she, she was asked by somebody, I thought, one of her friends or something like, what are you going to live on? You know? And, and she's like, she's like, Oh, I got it handled, you know, because she did because of the way that she was getting money from ill gotten, you know, funds 
through criminality and potentially homicides. Um, Josh, back to you here. Um, they were texting back and forth, and that is Colby and his mother, Lori. Um, and this was after the children went missing. Um, and, that, and I'll get into a little more detail about it in just a moment. But he said, and I quote, this is on the stand today, Colby. Texts I was receiving back were in a different language than she had used, meaning uh, Tylee. Um, and that she, Lori, uh, said that she intended to remarry but would not say to whom. Uh, she had moved from her Phoenix area home to a new location that she would not specify. And he goes on, Colby, to say she told me she was moving somewhere cold and it was dangerous for her to tell anybody where she was. Um, the crazy and the deception is starting to add up here. Um, but does that connect her necessarily uh, to the actual uh, bodies that, that began to pile up? Not directly, no, right? I mean, if, if you're the defense, you're going to point out that a lot of this doesn't directly connect her to, to the bodies. Um, but it certainly is starting to explain this mounting breakdown, uh, I guess, in her mental state that would help people to understand, wrap their heads around how she could get involved in the taking of her own children's lives. And that is, as I, I said before, is going to be a big question that the jurors have. So if they see the kind of slow unraveling of this person's mind, they might be able to appreciate and understand that that ultimately led to this nightmare scenario of her believing that it was in the best interests of her children to take their lives because they had become zombies or because they had been possessed by evil spirits and that she had uh, fallen at least uh, you know, victim to the kind of teachings and cult-like uh, teachings of Chad um, that allowed her to participate in something like this because, because there is testimony and there perhaps will be more testimony from the defense about how before all of this, she wasn't this person. She wasn't a person that anyone would imagine would do something like this. So I think it is important for the jurors to understand that, that, that character arc, if you want to call it that, of Lori Vallow and how she turned into the monster that she is today. Uh, by the way, Ann's got to jump off in a hard 19 minutes. So if you have questions for Ann, make sure you get them in now as I'm scrolling down here. But, um, and this, this one I like for you, uh, rich buddy says, Chad is going to walk. We'll only get improper burial charges. If anything, that's it. She will get the most of it. Do you agree with this? Huh. Well, you kind of explain that. I don't, I don't, but um, interestingly put, but I, I think that, that one goes down, they both go down, but I have been kind of struck by the fact that she's the female in this. And I did work on the Amanda Knox case out of Seattle with the murder case in Italy. And sometimes you see the female, you know, more villainized. I mean, her co-defendant, Amanda Knox was kind of an also ran, you know, she was the focus of the media and she was called a she devil and a vixen and a seductress and, everything else. And I'm just saying, you know, sometimes you're dealing with gender issues in a trial, you know, and you get that the woman, you know, involved in something like a homicide, they've got to be really bad, you know, because you don't see a lot of women charged with homicide. You know, it's just, we're, I guess we're the kinder, gentler gender, right? But I think, you know, she's the one that's going to look far worse, I think, than Chad as she's gone first. And, and she's a woman and those are her kids. What about Chad's kids? They weren't dark and possessed, were they? They weren't zombies. 
What happened with them? Didn't he have a bunch of kids? No, they were her kids. So I think all of those things indicate that she's going to be in a lot of trouble at the end of the day. But but he is too, because it took two to, ta two to tango. And going after that wedding in Hawaii and all those wedding pictures, have you seen them? And getting the rings before Tammy dies, you know, and planning the wedding and everything else. Um, you know, he was in it at that time and he's in it now in these trials. Uh, NF Mom says, this is interesting. I would never even think of this. Watching from Wyoming, uh, Dr. Laura would love to see Lori Vallow's notes. What happens to them at the end of the day or trial? Uh, I have no idea, but the professor hopefully does. Now, wouldn't we all like to see Lori's notes? Um, if I had to guess, though, I think she's literally just doodling um, to look busy, um, to keep herself looking like she's engaged, um, hopefully as a strategy for her to stop doing inappropriate things. But um, at the end of the day, those are her, as we would call them, you could technically make the argument they're mental impressions. Those, that, that, those are correspondence that she technically, you can make the argument, are having with her attorney. Um, I'm sure her attorney is just collecting the paperwork and shredding them if he's smart. If the attorney is um, has any uh, basic common sense, to be quite frank, you don't want that to be leaked on social media um, or outside that courtroom. So I, I think that they're obviously just shredding them uh, before she's taken back into custody. Um, but again, um, would love to be a fly on the wall to see what those notes are actually saying. But my guess is she's just doodling uh, pictures and rainbows and stars. <laughs> Someone right now is underneath that shredder trying to super glue it back together. <laughs> yeah. um, it must right. be tough. It must be tough. Um, to you, Josh, uh, from Jen Till, both Lori and Chad equally guilty. They fed off each other. Now Chad is a big goofy guy. Even his phone call sounded like a slug was talking. How did he draw anyone in? Lori is a master manipulator. We hear this and I, I know that we hear it a lot because my mother has uh, accused me of being a master manipulator. So every time I hear that, that phrase jumps, <laughs> that phrase jumps out at me. But um, Chad is not a very engaging guy. So um, and, and the jurors haven't seen him here. But um, I don't know. I, I guess my question is, does the focus become even stronger and heavier on Lori Vallow because uh, she's kind of the main player and to Anne's point, maybe a little bit more the villain even because she's a woman here. Yeah, you know, the, it, it is striking to hear his voice. Um, he is certainly doesn't have, you know, what would he, the, the kind of serpent's tongue kind of delivery that we would expect of a cult leader. Um but neither does she. She doesn't seem to be kind of driving things either in their conversations that they're having. Um, I don't I don't know how much the jurors are getting out of all of that. I don't know how much of that is convincing them of who played the, the major role here. I, I had always just kind of assumed that he was the one that was kind of manipulating her. Um, you know, he's the cult leader. She's kind of the follower, just the way that she spoke mm -hmm. about him and the way that she spoke about his you know, quote unquote, teachings and things, but he doesn't come across that way, certainly in the conversations that we've heard. But I'll tell you, this is really interesting evidence to the jurors because, and I'm, I'm glad we kind of started to talk about some of these conversations that they had, the recordings and text messages, because jurors, in my, my experience, really, they love to hear from the defendant. And whether that's the defendant taking the stand, which oftentimes won't happen, and I doubt that we'll see in this case, 
or it's the defendant in a, in an interview with police, or it's the defendant on a jailhouse phone call. They it, those that is so impactful to them because they're most curious as to how does this person um, re- respond to all of this? What is their answer for all of this? And and those conversations in particular, the ones that were about the search of the property, and he's letting her know about that. All of that, her reaction to it is important to those jurors because. We call that, you know, legally adoptive admissions, even if she's not really saying anything in response. It's that shared understanding that that has a significance that they're searching the property. And that's going to stand out in the jurors' minds, I believe. Uh, Michelle, who's watching us in South Africa, writes, I would also need to take notes. By the way, she's an attorney there, considering all the weirdness in this case. Um Followed by this from Ramona. Charles Manson didn't directly kill, but directed others to do so. Yeah. And uh, Shelby, Indiana Jones, he loved his siblings so much. It's always important uh, when dealing in true crime uh, to realize these are true victims. And uh, these are the siblings. And uh, he had every right to uh, be emotional. We're going to go on to some of the details, uh, as Josh just uh, alluded to and talked about. but one quick question, Anne, because I'm like so intrigued by this. And I think I asked you last time, but what in the world do you think was really going on between Alex Cox and Lori Vallow, brother and sister? Because it was definitely weird. Very weird. And didn't he believe some of what she believed? I mean, yeah. I'm glad you brought up Charles Manson because when you look at all the Manson girls, you know, like that they all shared kind of crazy thoughts and who was not a killer in that case, but he sure directed the girls and they all supported him never when they, when they went to trial. But I think that, um, that's a very weird relationship. And the fact that he would shoot, you know, Charles, you know, for Charles coming at him with a baseball bat when they're trying to get the kids off to school one morning. And then Lori has like no emotion. It's like so weird. And you think, you know what, boy, she put him up to that. Right. And then he tells his wife, well, they're going to make me the fall guy. You know, he's, he buys into their weirdness and some of the stuff they're talking about. And then he ends up dead. Very strange relationship. I mean, I don't know if that whole family was strange. I did watch the Sins of the Mother um, documentary twice just to get a feel for what was what was going on there. You know, how could these things go so awry? And I think I told you before, my dad's a psychiatrist and so is my brother. So maybe I'm always trying to figure these things out. But it's just so, so bizarre, you know, and to, to the the her brother would basically go kill her husband, you know, for what, you know, that's a strong bond. And and, yeah, my mother's a therapist. My father was a psychiatrist and uh, (laughs) I'm very intrigued by this stuff. My mother described it as an incestuous relationship that may or may not have involved sex. That's how my mother uh, described it, but it was, um, he would do anything for her, uh, to a disturbing degree. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Now, um, it's right. Your mothers are always right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let her know. I'll let her know. Um, so, uh, Dr. Laura, to you, um, there was a jail call that was played today in the courtroom after uh, Lori's arrest, uh, after the kids' uh, bodies are discovered. And uh, the call is played from the beginning. The judge stopped it. They had a sidebar about whether to play it. And Judge Boyce said, we can play this. Uh, And Colby Ryan says to his mother, and I quote here, I have prayed for you in my worst moments. I have prayed for my siblings who you swore to me were okay. I thought I could trust you. I thought that you were a completely different person. And she responds, 
you've known me your whole life. And he barks back, I don't know a murderous mother. Uh, the impact of that on a jury of Lori's peers. Um, I think that was devastating um, for those jurors to hear a son who's lost his two siblings, um, who he really feels is at the hands of his mother. And I think the jury probably was more alarmed by Lori's other response. She said, and I'm paraphrasing, you can judge me, Colby, all day long. The whole world can judge me. So just the lack of compassion um, and empathy, seeing her son in distress on that stand uh, really shows her ability to disconnect um, from uh, a sense of humanity, to be quite honest. So I think uh, it was very impactful for that jury to hear her son, her only surviving child, um, essentially state how he feels, which is that she's responsible for the murder of his siblings. And he thought she was a loving, doting mother, but her actions show her she was something uh, very, very different and cynical. Um, and just veering off for one second from El Verbena, uh, this is an assault on true mental health sufferers. I get a lot of emails and comments saying, um, you know, differentiating between mental health and being crazy effectively and right. that they're not one in the same, uh, being that your brother's a psychiatrist, what's your take on this? Well, I agree. I mean, and, and so many people are talking about mental health these days, which I think is great. You know, I mean, the stigma should, should not be there, you know, with mental health, it's just like having diabetes or anything else. I mean, basically you, 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 know, you have a condition that is usually treatable and it's something where there shouldn't be any kind of stigma attached. That's a lot different than saying, people are dark and zombies and we should kill them, you know? And I mean, that, that's just like night and day. That's not a mental health issue. That's a criminal issue. And maybe there was an insanity defense there somewhere, but she can't do it in Idaho. I mean, she ended up in the worst place for her kind of, you know, potential defense, frankly. I mean, she could bring that defense a lot of other places, but not in Idaho. And, uh, and I just wanted to get your take on that. Uh, Cause that really like reverberated with me. Uh, when Lori says to Colby, you've known me your whole life, and he snaps back, I don't know a murderous mother, right. um, a sort of a mic drop moment in the courtroom. What's the impact of that one phrase? It's just huge. And if I were the prosecutor, I would repeat it as much as I could and make it the centerpiece of my closing, along with the trilogy they used. Everyone loves trilogies, sex, you know, power, and money. Uh, Josh, to you, I don't want anyone accusing me of you not speaking enough. So <laughs> I've got to be careful of this. Um, Colby says to his mother, and this is a quote and it's a little lengthy, so bear with me. He says, it kills me to watch you. This is the jail house, uh, uh, recording, by the way, it kills me to watch you take the victim's route and say, this shouldn't have happened to you. When you're telling me that Chad Daybell came into your life and all of a sudden everything changes and I'm talking about my spirit feels this. I prayed. I trusted you. I gave you every chance I could past my own limitations of a human being. I pushed back all of everything to try and get you to help my own mother. You lied to me specific, uh, specifically to me more times than I can count about this. To know that they're gone, meaning the children, and you knew, and my phone's being texted by my little sister, who's not even alive, my little brother, who's the sweetest little kid ever, you tell me this is God's will for my whole family, including my stepfather, to be dead after everything that you tried to tell me. You can tell me right now 
that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is on your side. You can tell me that with all the conviction of your heart that Jesus Christ is on your side right now, please. And Lori responds, I can tell you that. Um, this is uh, heavy stuff here. I mean, this is like inside, you know, in, in not inside baseball, but inside uh, the Vallow family, uh, inside Lori's mind, inside Colby's mind. Um, how much will this penetrate the jurors, you think? I think tremendously. I mean, that that kind of catharsis, I think, is shared by by the the jurors themselves. How how dare you try to play the victim in all of this when you've taken the lives of my 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 two siblings? Um, it, 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 the other striking thing about it is. Where's her saying, you know, I didn't do this. Right. You know, I had nothing to do with this. I'm, I'm, I'm a victim because I lost my children to this man's hands or to whoever else or to, but it wasn't me. Where's the denial of any of it? And there's not. And so that's why, you know, I, I, I had mentioned this before. We talked about this as being an adoptive admission. Her silence speaks volumes in the fact that she won't deny all of the accusations that he's making. And the jurors might as well take that to be her admission being played in court for them. Um, and on cross with Colby, uh, the defense attorney, uh, Jim Archibald, asks him um, if his childhood with uh, Joe Ryan and Lori was uh, good or bad. And Colby doesn't miss a beat and says bad. But then he continues on. And he says, did your mom help you? Because he suffered from depression as a teen. And uh, and he basically says yes. And then goes on to say that uh, his mom, that Colby's mom, Lori, never taught him about zombies or casting out evil spirits or dark and light scales. Uh, when asked about vibrations, Colby says his mom said that they were the same vibration. And it goes on. Does any of this, obviously... On cross here, the defense is trying to paint Lori as a doting mother who's helping her son through depression. Um, is this going to play in light of what we're hearing uh, from the uh, jailhouse call? No. And I mean, that was a long time ago, his childhood. I mean, by the time she was starting to delve into the, this, all of this, you know, for want of a better term, you know, weirdness, you know, he was an adult. And so, and he's testified to what he testified to. I knew, I knew my mom, but then there's the murderous mom. And that's who the jury is looking at right now is the murderous mom. And that's what her son called her. And uh, Madeline, thanks for jumping in here. Please hit the like button. Don't do it for me. Do it for the old lady here. I use her for that. So uh, <laughs> hit the like button. It, it helps get the algorithm chugging, as my daughter says. Um. Dr. Laura, just a very broad question here, and then I'll, I'll let Ann say goodbye. But, I mean, just courtroom drama. I've had Tim Jansen on. He's a friend of the show. He's a criminal defense attorney based out of Tallahassee. And he, he's, you know, he's very savvy. He's, he's uh, handled high-profile cases. And he always underscores that um, a trial is theater, and you've got to really move the jurors. Do you agree with that? And Do you teach your students that? Absolutely. And that's why it's so important that opening and closing argument a lot of times can seal the fate of a defendant. If you're able to uh, stir the emotions or the empathy in this case of the jurors. And so um, there is a sense of theater. Um, and, and in law school, we have, uh, as Joshua and Anna, of course, are very 
well-versed on. We train students in trial practice, the art of trial practice. How do you connect with jurors on a personal level? Um, how do you engage them? How do you um, get them to like you, to be quite honest? We've seen uh, that likability of attorneys can really impact a jury. And so you want to be mindful of how you're being perceived by the jury. Um, and and again, like I said, opening and closing arguments, you want to make sure um, that there's some gravitas to it. You want to you want the jury to perceive and accept and adopt your version, your narrative uh, for whatever uh, that is for your particular client. And so um, I think that's uh, part of our trial process. I, I think it's it's kind of fun. My my dad always says, um, oh, you're going to court to watch the peacocks uh, <laughs> show off their feathers. Uh, that's how he jokingly yeah. refers to opening and closing arguments. But um, it's, it's actually a great analogy. Is your father an attorney? Uh, he's not. He's he's a pastor, but um, he's a legal eagle, as I like to say. He's uh, very passionate about the law, constantly asking questions. And that's why his daughter became a professor. Uh, Anne, and then we'll let you go here. Jody Johnston, uh, exactly contrary to the point I just raised, this is what I don't like about the legal system, making it a theater, not a courtroom. That is how the defendants should cry or cue, cry on cue, I'm sorry, or how to dress, etc. How do you respond to that? Well, it should be good theater. It shouldn't be bad theater. I mean, you know, basically, um, it is theater no matter what. I mean, it's like we're sitting here talking. We can be on the sidelines like people are, you know, calling a football game. You know, you never know what's going to happen. You just don't. And it's fascinating to people, and that's why it's theater. But if you can't put together a story that sells to a jury in a way that you can connect on a human level um, with the jury, you know, you've got problems. It's absolutely theater, but it's not fake. You know, it's real. It's real life. It's real drama. And these are real trials and real verdicts with real people. And uh, STS Nation got a real treat. Ann Bremner, she's a trial attorney, but she's also one of the nation's most recognized legal analysts. She's been practicing over 35 years. She was a prosecuting attorney for the criminal division of King County. That is in Seattle. And she's appeared on everything. Fox, CNN, MSNBC, HLN, and of course, STS. And uh, your, your final thoughts. I mean, uh, they say that this is moving along at a very fast clip. It could be over within two weeks time. Is this uh, a slam dunk at this point? I know you guys never say that, but uh, are, are oh, we yeah, getting closer to that? That's a legal term, slam dunk, but I, <laughs> it sure looks like it right now. Um, I think it'll be over with soon. And I think that um the fact that cameras aren't in the courtroom is just really unfortunate because it's the kind of trial I think that should have been televised. So we could see, you know, this particular case, a cold case, a very dangerous case. You only see it with Charles Manson, David Koresh, Jim Jones. I mean, it's, it's, it's not once in a decade kind of a case, but um, fortunately, we don't see these all that often. And I think it's important for all the public to see this. And also, it's been a real pleasure being on with everybody. And um you know, I love all the international calls. I'm Scottish, so I like the Scots, too. So. <laughs> well, we'll have you back on soon enough and uh, as the trial moves forward. But uh, thanks so much. Congrats on your uh, big win today. Thank you. And uh, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye. And uh, have you guys, if you're okay, you're, you're all right to hang for a little while and take some more questions? Okay. Sure. Um, so, Josh, to you, uh, around 11 a.m. local time, um, Lori is seen wiping her eyes with a tissue uh, as uh, Colby Ryan is testifying. Um, and then 
uh, this was during the uh, cross, Jim Archibald, the defense attorney, uh, asked the question, who taught you God was good? And Colby Ryan says, the church and my mom. Um, it's an emotional moment. Um, but again, it doesn't necessarily balance out um, some of the hard things we are finding out about Lori, does it? No. And and what is she emotional about? I mean, is she emotional about the death of her children, the horrible, horrible way in which they were their little bodies were discarded? Or is she emotional about, uh, you know, having heard from her son that he she was a good mom at one point and 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 taught him about God? I don't perhaps that even plays into some ego and narcissism on her part. And that's where those tears are coming from. But I, you know, to see some emotion out of her at points that might be expected and then to see zero emotion at points where it would be fully expected. Again, the jurors are paying attention to this type of stuff. I mean, they, they really are, you know, the, the, the last comment was about that this shouldn't be theater. And I, I agree to some extent, it shouldn't be make-believe. It shouldn't be perf- all performative, but it is theater in the sense that the, the audience are, are jurors and they're, they're watching this all play out in front of them. And they're taking note of things like emotional reactions and things like that. So um, it doesn't move the needle as far as, you know, guilt or, or not guilty. I, I don't know, but they're, they're certainly paying attention and wondering to themselves, what is it that caused this woman to cry here at this moment and not at others? And uh, Josh, you always hear amongst lawyers, it only takes one when speaking of uh, the jurors. So uh, when you're hearing these moments um, of of what seems like kind of genuine, you know, love between a mother and son, um, as a defense attorney, does it does it worry you? Do you start to think, um, I should say for the state, does it worry you um, that you've got to come back with something even stronger to potentially draw that one juror who's kind of falling for this moment of gentleness to, to come back and draw that one juror back onto your side? Uh, do you think about that when you're a prosecutor and you were a prosecutor of the year? So you would know. <laughs> uh, absolutely. You think about it. I think it's a consideration that lots of prosecutors have in lots of cases, but probably not so much in this one, because this case is so devastating from an emotional perspective to the defense, because we're talking about the death of children and because we're talking about the death of children at the hands of their own mother and because of the way in which they were treated in the last moments of their lives and the way that those bodies were recovered. I don't think there is any concern on the prosecution's uh, part of whether or not they've got the emotional control of that courtroom. Uh, Chico's mummy, who's a friend of the show and weighs in often, uh, Dr. Lord, to you, and this this is uh, a very important facet of this trial, I think. And, and she writes, she didn't kill them. Alex did, which many people agree uh, about. Uh, they need to show that she put him up to it. How critical is that, actually, to link Lori to Alex, which we haven't seen um, 
that thread all the way through yet. Yeah, I think it's very critical for, especially for the conspiracy um, to commit murder charge, because they need to be able to demonstrate that she was the puppeteer. She was the individual behind the scenes that was essentially driving the car uh, that led to the brutal murder of her two children. So I think that's going to be a challenge for the prosecution to make that link. But obviously, they feel very confident based on the evidence again, which we're assuming is going to continue to be circumstantial evidence, will make a direct link through communications with Alex. Uh, again, whether there are text messages, emails, phone calls, conversations uh, that perhaps other people overheard, but they have to make that link for that conspiracy charge in terms of the murder of her children. So I think that Based on what we've seen thus far, they will be able to make that connection, but it'll be interesting to see how they put the pieces to the puzzle together. Uh, Josh, Lindy writes, uh, if Lori is found not guilty in the murders of her children, and that's always a possibility, although Ann Bremner seemed to think it was as close to a slam dunk as possible, can they get her on other charges like child neglect? Uh, the short answer to that is yes. Uh, the the probably bigger question, though, is would that appear as to be a complete loss for the prosecution and a miscarriage of justice? And I think they would think so. I mean, they, you know, this case is about the deaths of those children, and 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 not to not to uh, forget about um, Chad's wife. Uh, so, you know, you don't go into a a murder trial of this magnitude uh, with the idea that you've got the safety net, uh, net of child neglect waiting in the wings. You go into this as the prosecution with the idea that you want to hold somebody responsible for these horrible, horrible crimes. Uh, Cheryl McKay writes, uh, Dr. Laura, to you, could a smoking gun be fingerprints on the duct tape? We found out uh, in the evidence uh, uh, here. Um, that JJ was duct taped. Um, if there's a fingerprint potentially from Lori Vallow, which we don't know when we would find that out, uh, it hasn't been determined yet, but hypothetically a fingerprint comes back and that evidence is brought into play. That's pretty much a done deal, right? I would say absolutely. Um, that would be the smoking gun um, in the case. It reminds me of the O.J. Simpson trial when they you know, had the dramatic moment. Um, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Right. Same concept. That would be, in my point, the pivotal moment in the trial where they would be able to make a very close link, obviously, uh, that Lori Vallow not only was there, but she actively participated in the murder um, of her son, J.J., in terms of uh, covering his mouth with the duct tape. So that would be a huge win for the prosecution. And that's when, although we normally don't say slam dunk, but it would be an absolute slam dunk at that point. And uh, Dr. Law, right back to you with Gerald here. If she knew about the children, but wasn't there, does it make her guilty? If your law student asked you that question, how do you respond? Absolutely not. Um, simply because she knew about the children doesn't make her guilty. What would make her guilty is actively being involved in the murder of those children, whether that is orchestrating it in a conspiracy to commit murder or actively committing the murder herself. But you still have to make that connection. There are a lot of bad moms, unfortunately, out there, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that she, again, that's what the prosecution needs to prove that she was actively involved in either the planning or the actual committing of these murders. 
And just for the record, my mother is not one of the bad ones. She's one of the great ones. I know you're. <laughs> I know you're listening, mom. I know you're listening. Um, nine fifty-five in the morning, uh, Josh. Um, the state asked Colby Ryan about the day that Charles Vallow died, and Colby Ryan says that Lori called him at work and said Charles died of a heart attack. Well, we know that that's not true. Um, Colby says he went home. Kylie greeted him. Alex was sitting on the couch watching TV and had a bandage on his head. Colby asked Alex what happened. Alex said he had been hit with a bat and then he shot Charles. Uh, that night, he said Lori's demeanor was calm. I mean, this is just so, all of this is just so insane and just hard to like fathom and process. Um, what must it be? I mean, are the jurors saying to themselves, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> yeah, I think they are like all of us. I mean, I, I, I've, I've thought that I've thought that if we could throw it back to the, the Murdoch case too, the amount of dead bodies in these people's lives is, is staggering. If I, if I had one instance of somebody dying under suspicious circumstances in my life, that would be a pretty remarkable thing. And there's just a trail of people who've died under uh, uh, suspicious circumstances in the lives of Lori Vallow. And, and that's why I threw it back to the, the Murdochs as well, that, you know, we just keep on hearing about these people that die under suspicious circumstances. And yes, I think the jurors are thinking to themselves, <laughs> what did you say? What the hell is going on here? I think they're absolutely thinking to themselves, what the hell is going on here? Because we keep on hearing about people ending up dead. And that is not what I know from the way that I live my life. I'm saying this is the jurors saying this to, to themselves. All these jurors, I got to assume that the vast majority of them have gone through their lives and not experienced, you know, even a fraction of what they're hearing play out in court. Uh, Sean Beecher says, irony, this is kind of funny, Lori and Chad are the demonic zombies. Uh, maybe that is true. Uh, Dr. Laura, to you, um, from Bavesh, what happens if Chad, at his later trial, blames everything on Lori, which, by the way, we had, and if you didn't see it, we had the director of Sins of Our Mother, uh, Sky Borgman, on yesterday, and she thinks that Chad uh, very well may turn on Lori. Uh, and if you didn't catch the episode, it's interesting and uh, check it out. But what happens if Chad at his later trial uh, blames everything on Lori, but that information is not available now? Would Lori's sentence, if any, be reviewed later by the court? Interesting question. Yeah, so um, absolutely not. If she's convicted of this murder, I mean, she could try through the appeals process to say, see, I mean, sorry, what am I saying? Appeals process, I apologize. Once she's convicted of murder, that conviction is going to stand unless she's able to appeal uh, based on a procedural um, error of some sort within the case. But uh, really, if they, the prosecutor thought uh, that that was indeed the case, uh, they would have probably struck a deal um, with Lori and that's that or with Chad, to be quite honest. But they are convinced that both of them were actively involved uh, in the murders of these children. And that's why they're they're holding both of them accountable with separate trials. So I don't think it would make a difference at all if he tries to blame uh, Lori, because, again, they're one of the charges that's really important to remember is conspiracy. So even if Lori was the one hypothetically uh, that uh, actually murdered her children, they still can establish that Chad Daybell was actively involved in that conspiracy. He helped plan it. Uh, he was involved. And so they both will be held accountable by the law. Um, 
Josh, uh, 9.57 this morning, local time in Boise. Uh, Lori tells Colby that she was not getting Charles life insurance and goes on a few weeks after Charles died. Uh, Colby Ryan said his mom told him that she wasn't receiving any life insurance money. Uh, Colby says he spoke with his mom monthly or every other month about their finances. Lori often told them they were out of money. Um, this is obviously that part of the, uh, trifecta of money, sex, and power. Uh, but again, um, money is an issue, uh, talking about running out of money. And when people run out of money, they get desperate and people do desperate things, uh, where they're in those situations. Uh, is this where the jury starts to piece things together? Um, you know, if A plus B, uh, equals C, they, they start doing the math on all this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they're not putting it all together with kind of her you know, extremist doomsday views about, you know, the children were full of evil and this was for the best thing for them. Um, if they're not buying into the whole idea that this was just all about her and and, and Chad getting together and having a, a life beyond all of them, um, then money certainly could provide that, that motive that the jurors can hang their hat on. And it, you know, the, the prosecution maybe laid it out that way in their opening to kind of give this three-pronged, three-headed beast, as it were, of motivation, um, because it isn't clear that there is one reason why it all took place. And, and, you know, they don't, the jurors don't need to agree on that fact. They don't need to go back there and have unanimous decision that the reason these murders were committed were because of X. They just need to all agree that the murders were con committed for, and they don't even need to have a reason quite frankly, just to hold her responsible for it. But it's as long as they all believe that for whatever reason she committed the murders, then they can come to a unanimous uh, decision. Um, and, and Josh, right back at you. So Zulema Pasnanis is, uh, and I never know if I'm saying her last name right. Uh, so um, she was Alex Cox's wife, and they were married two weeks before uh, he died of quote-unquote natural causes, which some people question. She was on the stand uh, earlier in the day and said some strange things, which she said the other day. Uh, she said that Chad and Lori made others feel special and powerful, including Alex. They told Alex he was the angel who had come to Saul before he became Paul. And he was the one who spoke to him and made him blind so he would mend his ways and become a follower of Jesus Christ. It goes on and on and on. Zulema says Alex quit his job and moved to Rexburg after Chad and Lori told him to do so. He left behind his belongings in Arizona. Chad and Lori told him the only reason he came to earth at this time, his sole purpose was to protect Lori. Um, is this a case, because this was a cross, I believe, by the defense, where the defense is trying to pin this subtly onto Alex. You know, I know that's been one of the theories from the get-go, that that's what the defense is trying to do. Um, they're going to have to provide somebody to the jurors. Uh, they're going to have to, you know, they can't, they can't just uh, finish this trial without providing the jurors with some alternate boogeyman, some alternate person to blame this all on. And maybe this is their way of trying to 
weave that into the cross-examination that they'll further try to exploit uh, when they do their closing arguments. But, um, you know, the 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 other thing I, I take notice of here is that the jurors may be viewing this evidence not so much as Alex's involvement as much as it's just this further kind of understanding that these people held some beliefs that were really uh, beyond what we usually consider normal religious beliefs in the sense that they be believed they were somehow manifest beings, that they were given, uh, you know, authority from God. And if you, you believe that you're somehow a, a reincarnate angel or that you're given authority from God, you might do some pretty extreme things. And that, that might be something that the jurors are kind of understanding too. We talked a lot about, um, or we talked earlier about LDS and kind of it, some of the jurors or a lot of the jurors may be very familiar with that religion. Well, this isn't a part of all of that to believe that you're somehow a reincarnate angel, you know, active upon the will of God. That, that is the, the fringe type of stuff that causes people to do some really horrible, horrible, crazy things, i.e. take the lives of their own children. Uh, Cam Stokes, right. Writes, and we'll take uh, these two last comments and we'll wrap it up after that. Uh, do you think, as Lori is hearing all of this evidence, Dr. Laura, that the prosecution has found, uh, sorry, do you think, as Lori is hearing all this evidence that the prosecution has found, is surprised, worried at all? Do you think Lori is worried as she's seeing this and hearing this for the first time? Um, I don't know if she's worried. I would be speculating. Um, but what I can say is she should be worried. Um, anyone in, the, in Lori Vallow's uh, position where you're sitting there and you're hearing uh, people verify or confirm uh, the prosecution's charges, their allegations that uh, you had a special calling to cast out demons out of people. And the way that you know that you're successful in that is the person's death. Um, seeing these as Joshua was talking about murders, um, all uh, mysteriously connected to them in some way from uh, Chad Daybell's wife uh, to her brother, uh, to her children. So I don't know if she is worried, to be honest, but she should be because this is very um, damning evidence for the jury uh, that we've seen just in the short time of the trial. And I think that um, if she's not worried, I would question again her um, mental stability in terms of uh, being able to understand the gravity of what's going on in this trial. Uh, Ann Vroom is also a friend of the show. A question for Josh. Had a, and you, you kind of addressed this a moment ago, Josh, but she asked it uh, much better than I did. How did panelists think the defense might introduce alternate theories like Alex did it uh, all, all on his own without knowledge of Lori, or can they just throw that all out there in closings? Uh, they're going to have to start to weave it into the case through this cross-examination. If it's true that they're not calling uh, their own witnesses in the defense part of the case, that would be one way to do it. Bring in defense witnesses who can somehow testify to this and establish some of that, or they can weave it into the cross-examination. But to answer the second part of that, no, they can't just lay it all out there in closing argument without something to attach it to in trial. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the jurors won't buy it. The, 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 the jurors will hold them accountable if they're just going to start picking theories wholly out of cloth at the end of trial with nothing to base it on. And two, the prosecution's going to stand up and say, this is 
all based on none of this is based on what was presented in court and the judge will shut it all down. So they they have to have some basis, some foundation, and then they can extrapolate on that. They can expound on that. They can make their arguments. That's what closing argument is for. But you have to you have to at least plant those seeds somewhere in the trial in order to try to exploit that at the end. Dr. Laura McNeil, it was her first time on SDS and hopefully uh, not the last. Hopefully it'll be the first of many. Uh, she's currently a professor of law uh, where she teaches Civ Pro education law, um, urban revitalization and the law. The list goes on. Uh, she's contributed to the national debate on law, education policy and race relations, uh, both through op-eds and radio and television news features for places like the Dr. Phil show. CNN, MSNBC, C a CBS, NBC, and now, of course, you got to add STS. <laughs> the most um, important one. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Laura, it was great to have you on. Uh, what are your final thoughts about all this? Uh, where do you think we head? And by the way, Adi Martinez says, great guests. That's what makes STS are people like Dr. Laura and Joshua Ritter. So uh, your final thoughts today. Um, thanks. Thanks so much for the love also uh, from the, the followers that are here today, especially our global people. Um, my final thoughts are, I think this trial, uh, I think Lori Vallow's done. I think the doomsday cult mom will be convicted. I think we can expect as the trial continues to unfold, uh, witness after witness after witness, all attesting to Lori's uh, belief um, that she needed to cast demons out of people, her loved ones. And uh, the only way to do that is successfully is for them to to be killed, to be murdered. And I think they're going to be able to establish me in the prosecution, both the conspiracy to murder her children, as well as the um, actual murder uh, of the children as well, meaning that she was actively involved. And uh, Patty Barnett could very well be a juror. Uh, she's a regular person, um, just like us. And she says, Colby won my heart. So maybe the jurors are thinking the exact same thing Today, followed by Christina, who says, my heart broke for Colby. Uh, Joshua Ritter, he was named the 2015 Outstanding Prosecutor of the Year by the Association of Deputy District Attorneys. But upon joining his current personal injury firm, Eldabe Ritter. Am I saying it right this time? Eldabe? Yes, thank you. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Josh has continued to devote his talents to the tenacious and zealous defense of his clients. And perhaps most importantly, he is the host of the podcast, True Crime Daily, The Sidebar. True Crime Daily, The Sidebar. Check it out and do yourselves a favor. Uh, Josh, your final thoughts uh, about this twisted, twisted trial. Uh, well, thank you again for having me back. This is always a treat. I look forward to it. It's, it's, it's really nice to have these conversations, too, that aren't Kind of quick sound bites, but like a long form conversation where you really can kind of dig into these issues. So I, I enjoy it. Thank you. I hope you will have me back again. I, I enjoy my time here. Thank um, you. See, I, we're not we're not just a, we're not just a TikTok Twitter world. Um, no, <laughs> we are we are in a long format. The most successful podcaster in the world, who I'm coming for, is Joe Rogan, and his podcasts are three hours long. So yeah. people can listen and enjoy listening. We, and, we uh, do have an attention span. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people do. It gives you it gives you faith in humanity, and no better people than STS Nation. So thank exactly. you. Guys. So exactly. Go ahead, John. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I talked at the beginning about how this case has played out as really being heavy on motivation and uh, consciousness of guilt. 
And I think that's true. Um, but that doesn't mean that that it's not a solid case. I don't mean to make it sound like the case by the prosecution is not um, going to secure a conviction. And I, I feel that that's the way we're headed unless something truly dramatic happens. And so I, I don't know what the defense has to pull out of their back pocket. Um, but if it's simply going to be resting upon their own cross-examination and closing argument, I think that this case um, may be, the, the Lori's fate may be sealed on this thing. That seems to be the consensus today. Quick programming note. Tomorrow night, we're trying to get together a panel of uh, an attorney and some psychologists to weigh in on the uh, mental health of Lori Vallow. Thursday, we are doing a 5 p.m. live Eastern show. We have uh, the state attorney from Palm Beach County, Dave Arenberg, who is frequently on TV. Uh, it is the one-year anniversary of Charlie Adelson being arrested uh, in a case that dates back to 2014 of Dan Markell, who is a Harvard-trained law professor, a law professor uh, like Dr. Laura McNeil, who was gunned down in his driveway by a pair of hitmen. And uh, the family is still living their lives, uh, who are, many people believe, behind all this. The ex-brother-in-law is waiting to go on trial. Uh, so we have Dave Arenberg on that, along with John Singer and... Uh, Tim Jansen, uh, who is a Tallahassee criminal defense attorney. And then Friday, uh, 12.30 p.m. Eastern time, it is your true crime fill with Detective Phil Waters and Scott Duffy. Until then, thank you, guys. We'll see you next time. Love you, America. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.